everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. Over the years, the world has become very integrated. And as a result, everyone and everything has become interconnected and interdependent in numerous ways. Now, while the integration has been a move to drive towards efficiency and affordability, the increased consolidation of production in countries like China, Taiwan, Vietnam, India, and more where the labor cost is, cost is low has brought the global community many, many complex challenges. For instance, with the pandemic starting in China and the economy shutting down, the resulting fallout, shortages and collapse of supply chains has cautioned us about the risk of global dependency on any single country and the need for distributing risk. To discuss the COVID-19 impact on the global supply chain, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Dr. Zal Firoz to Risk Roundup. Dr. Firoz holds executive and senior management roles, including appointments at Procter & Gamble, Fortune 500 companies, and has held faculty appointments at Harvard University, University of Southern California, Michigan State University, and University of California, San Diego. He is a partner, senior partner at Pierce Consulting Group and author of the upcoming book, Perspectives of Supply Chain Competitiveness, and he's based in the United States. Welcome, Dr. Firoz. We are honored to have you in Risk Roundup. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate uh, you, Joe, you having me here today. Oh, wonderful. No, delighted to have you, uh, to welcome you here on Risk Roundup. So let's first begin talking about the supply chain, because as we compare it to the last pandemic and to the current pandemic, because as we compare how the global economy was during the last pandemic, that was the time of, I think, Spanish flu, uh, to this COVID-19 pandemic era, what do you think has changed with respect to the supply chains? A lot has changed. Uh, so if we look back, you know, in the Spanish flu, um, we can see that supply chains existed. Supply chains have existed throughout, you know, any time that there's been ever, if there's ever been commerce. But if we look at a previous generation in the Spanish flu era, um, there was perhaps not as much globalization as there is now. So now we have manufacturers in one country, distributors in another country, wholesalers throughout the world, uh, you know, retailers throughout the world, uh, online commerce, all sorts of, uh, of ways of doing business that potentially just didn't exist back in the Spanish flu era. Um, what that means is that business is done differently and the impact to global business is perhaps far more um, now than it was before. Uh, in a previous generation in which there may have been a pandemic like the Spanish flu, I would I don't know the exact data and the exact numbers off the top of my head, but I would guess that the number of uh, imports and exports um, were significantly less. Yes, that is very true. You made an excellent point about the globalization, the nature and uh, the uh, impact of the globalization, because as we see China, that uh, during the Spanish flu time, it held a very you know, little percentage of the global economy. The impact of China was uh, very minor. But now if you look at it, China of uh, significant, I won't say majority, but significant stake in the global economy. And because the origin of this pandemic virus was in China, is in China, now currently China, as we all know, is the de, fa de facto factory of the world. Everybody, you know, depends on China for the manufacturing. So do you think this reality has drawn attention to the damage 
such dependency on one country can bring from an economic perspective as we see a significant percentage of supply chains reeling in shock and crumbling with each passing day because of this you know ongoing covid-19 pandemic Absolutely. Um, China, you're absolutely right, the backbone of manufacturing. But from a supply chain perspective, that's just one cog of the, of the entire dynamic. And the reason for why I say that is because over the past six weeks, uh, people in general have changed their behavioral patterns. Uh, a large majority of people have now had to change the way they've functioned. Uh, the, the, the number of retail outlets that have closed or have temporarily paused or the ways businesses have changed for from curbside delivery to uh, digital um, fulfillment and online ordering um, has changed the dynamic of how people actually purchase. What products people purchase in general have also changed. Uh, the number of regulations and the, um, the, the spikes in demand for certain products that you would never have thought about, like toilet paper and, you know, hand sanitizer and so have, have changed, you know, the, the dynamic of how commerce has, has kind of operated and it's taken place in the last five or six weeks. Um, the reason for why this is important is because in a, you know, a, a, a supply chain disaster scenario, which we've experienced in many scenarios in the past from, you know, hurricanes taking out you know, manufacturing sites or distribution centers or, or portions of a supply chain or um, you know, the 9-11 attacks, which you know, heightened security measures because of terrorism and, and you know, various floods that took place in Thailand and earthquakes in Japan, all sorts of things that have impacted specific um, industries, specific geographies, uh, have impacted uh, particular groups of supply chains um, are, you know, can come into focus. Perhaps the difference here is that this pandemic is much more global. It, it, it affects all geographies. Every single country has been affected and impacted in some way, shape, or form. It affects every single person, for the most part, in terms of how people are actually behaving and what they're allowed to do, job loss, employment numbers, um, purchasing behavioral patterns, all of these types of things. And it affects you know, businesses throughout the board in terms of how business can actually operate. There's some businesses that have done you know, more business in, in COVID-19, you know, companies like hand soap manufacturers or, or PPE manufacturers. But there's, the majority of businesses are, are in a time of a flux of uncertainty, and many have done worse. So while China may be the epicenter, may be the root cause of um, the problems that have taken place or the, the starting points for, for the coronavirus and for COVID-19, I would hesitate to say, I wouldn't say that they are... Um, that because they are affected, everyone else is affected. I would say that they are just one piece of the puzzle. Um, so when you change behavioral patterns of consumers, when you have the inability to forecast and project demand, uh, when you don't necessarily know um, whether products are still gonna be viable, whether services are still gonna be viable, the entire supply chain has changed altogether. The manufacturing hub, that's, that is China, is just one of the cogs that has changed. Yes. Yes, no, that, I think that that is a very good point. And the emphasis on this, you know, behavior change of the consumer, that is, I think, at the very core of not only the changes that we are witnessing, you know, today and the impact that we are witnessing today, but what will drive the transformation in the coming tomorrow. That all is going to depend on the consumer behavior. So as we notice the changes in consumer behavior today, especially, you know, when we see that, you know, online shop, purchase, uh, shopping, you know, e-commerce is going to, you know, pick up uh, significantly. But what else, what are the other trends we can identify? What are the other, you know, uh, 
drivers we can identify from the consumer behavior today that will give us some you know sort of a outlook where you know the world will be moving not only for the uh, you know supply chain but also the business models and the new systems that would emerge where do you see us going because of this shift in the consumer behavior well, that's a great, great question I, I i don't necessarily see the shift just simply being you know one day we were going to stores and buying products and you know now we're buying the same products or just buying them online there's a number of things that need to be considered so if, if i look at some data sources I mean, certain data sources i can see that uh, you know the department of labor um usa today a number of different indicators um from from cnn to reuters to to, to you know, all these different uh, metrics in terms of data measurement as far as unemployment numbers you can see that you know there's a 14.7 uh, percent uh, unemployment uh, claim uh, that's taken place as it stands today. And if we compare that to the Great Depression, that was 24.9%, you know, but if we compare it to the Great Recession in 2009, it was 9.9%. So we are at a significantly high rate of unemployment. Furthermore, um, changes in behavioral patterns have also been documented. Studies have also shown that you know, fewer people obviously are able to shop for certain products. Fewer people are buying cars over the past eight weeks. Fewer people are able to go into stores because stores have been closed. Fewer people are actually going to the grocery store, even if the grocery store is open, uh, because they choose to buy it, whatever the product they, that they want is and, and pick it up from the curb or have it delivered. So all of these you know, different pieces are, are coming into effect. If we go a little bit further, we can also see that you know, in the last you know, 10 years, aside from the, the, the political uh, you know, connotations and spectrum, in the last 10 years, there has been you know, 21 million jobs added. Um, and in the last um, in a little while, the number of jobs that have gone you know, down have, have been tremendous. I mean, there's, there's a number of, of, um, of, of factors that actually come into play to see how people's behavioral patterns are going to change. Now, while the model might be a little bit different, while the mode of purchasing might be a little bit skewed in terms of not being able to allow people to go into a store and buy something, um, the ability of people to purchase is also going to change. So what that means is that if we're looking at trend patterns, we, we can't necessarily say that you know there were sales of five million items over the you know period before, you know, before the COVID nineteen struck, and now there's going to be five million. It's just going to be online. It's not necessarily going to be the case. We have to adjust for how many people are still going to buy certain products. What's going to actually happen in certain industries? Um, there's metrics that actually show the probability of default for certain industries. We can actually see uh, you know how certain areas certain geographies have been uh, impacted and have, have they've been devastated if you look at las vegas who's had to shut down the entire strip you know cities like new orleans these types of places um, there is a a major hit that's taken place to the, to the core infrastructure of how business functions and if we look at you know the change in terms of consumer behavior in terms of now going through more of a digital uh, model and going online more that's great and that's that's expected and that's you know exactly what we see uh, but we also have to factor in the possibility of industries that we relied on and business uh, transitions or transactions that we relied on in the past having changed in themselves, not necessarily being uh, just converted into a digital form, but perhaps changing in terms of the entire dynamic. Yes, yes. No, I, I, but I was thinking as the consumer changes, and uh, more and more people start to purchase, you know, even the basic items like groceries and all that, you know, online. Ordering is one thing, 
but deliveries, you know, are a whole another thing. Now, so far, humans were, you know, whenever we would order food from the restaurants to go or, you know, whenever we order groceries to be delivered, humans were delivering all that, you know, the distribution was, and delivery was always human was at the center. But if provided this COVID-19 pandemic, you know, expands further, there are, you know, second phase, third phase, and it becomes more and more severe. And humans would be hesitant to go out of their house to protect themselves from these healthcare, you know, challenges that we all are facing at the moment. How do you see the businesses shifting their strategy for distribution, for deliveries? How, what kind of changes do you see happening for them to be able to survive this new, you know, distribution model, new, you know, delivery models? And what, what is required at the very core of that transformation for uh, the businesses to be still operational? It's a good question. In, in, in the example you gave, there's a number of different vulnerabilities that exist. Even if there is uh, you know, a risk in terms of distribution and fulfillment, there's also, and, and if that can be um, lessened by various you know, methods. I, I know now they have touch-free contact when you, you have food delivered and you know, they, they put it down instead of actually handing it to you and these types of things, which is great. Uh, but I would argue that that doesn't necessarily remove any or, or majority of the threats. That doesn't necessarily remove the majority of risk. Um, there could still be a potential contamination at the site of where the food's actually made, potential contamination in terms of where the, you know, the food's sourced or the ingredients are sourced or you know, these types of things. So there's a number of different factors that, that come into uh, the fold. Um, businesses uh, have so far, not all, but many have focused, at least the consumer facing businesses like restaurants and such, have, have largely focused, it seems, on, on the distribution portion, uh, not necessarily the manufacturing portion as much. I mean, maybe you know, monitoring staff and making sure that staff is okay before they, they actually uh, you know, make whatever it is they're making to, to distribute. But I haven't necessarily seen much attention placed on the actual ingredients that are put in the food and where that's sourced. And if there's you know, risks, risk factors of contamination of food, I don't even know if that's, that's a consideration. But the point is that as things begin to go, you know, if there is a second phase and a third phase and these types of things, uh, simply um, uh, restricting and, 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 and optimizing the distribution side of the supply chain, it won't be enough. Um, that is what's being done now. It might make for, you know, good marketing. It might prevent a portion of, um, of, of, of risk, uh, but I would not say that it's foolproof and I would not say that it, it, it uh, it, it, it attends to the entire supply chain, perhaps just the last part. Perhaps, perhaps. Now, uh, we are likely going to see the acceleration in the digital transformation. And that, there is no doubt about that, it seems. I mean, the digital age was already, we were moving towards that, you know, but the speed at which we were moving is now, you know, quite accelerated because of this COVID-19 pandemic. So as we are, collectively forced to face all our weaknesses as individuals, as entities across nations, it's government industries, organizations, academia, everyone is you know, going to face their weaknesses and vulnerabilities. We are at a point where we have to identify all our vulnerabilities. So once we do that, where do you see the needed transformation? What changes do you see are imminent that would, 
fundamentally transform or you know i would say you know completely redesign and redefining of the supply chain for the coming tomorrow in terms of product manufacturing in terms of distribution in terms in terms of all the you know pieces that you know make the supply chain product production distribution everything well that's a good question um in, in a typical you know supply chain model you'd see a manufacturer a distributor maybe a wholesaler and then a retailer and then a consumer walking into a store and buying the product and, uh, that that supply chain um in itself is flawed uh, and that supply chain that that notion is might be traditional but it, it, it certainly doesn't apply and hasn't applied for for many years and the reason for why is because we have you know online sales that, that exist we have the ability for a um a, a wholesaler to act as a retailer we have the ability for a consumer to go directly to the manufacturer in many ways there's all sorts of different models that work and all sorts of different businesses that use various types of models um, as we move to a world that is more digitally inclined, more um, reliant on e-commerce and online purchasing, uh, what we're essentially going to see is a movement to remove certain cogs of that supply chain. So, for example, retailers, physical retailers, might ha had already been at risk. There was already the threat of you know online sales eroding certain portions of business from from uh, regular face-to-face -face, uh, and in-person brick-and-mortar retailers. That's just going to get accelerated, I would expect. Uh, it's not necessarily going to be uh, a pivotal change in the supply chain. It's more so going to mean now there might be um, physical retailers, and I, I don't see them you know, going away tomorrow because of the COVID-19 threat, but the reliance on those on those big box retailers, on those retailers in general, might be less, and it might be lessened to a greater uh, effect than it would have been if COVID-19 hadn't taken place. The reason for why is because if you think about how things have progressed over the last six years, no, sorry, six weeks, and you see that people have, who have never bought a product online before, uh, never you know, needed to go on Amazon or never needed to, you know, you had even never even considered, uh, you know, purchasing groceries online, had essentially had to be forced to do something in line with, with some sort of digital commerce. I mean, there were, there were ways to go about it, but the vast majority had to adapt. And when we emerge um, and things go back to, you know, quote unquote normal and post COVID-19, at least post first phase COVID-19, and we see, you know, retailers opening up and grocery stores opening up, even if it's not in the same way, there'll still be demand. People will still uh, inevitably go to these stores, but there might be a reduced number. It might not necessarily be a 50% reduction, but it might be a 10% or 15% or 20% reduction of people who are happy shopping online, who are now relying on Amazon, now relying on all these different online uh, platforms where in the past they had no need to even explore that as an option. So with that taking place, what we may see is that the supply chain in general, which was you know, essentially flawed, it was more like a supply web or supply you know, network, is now needing to contour to meeting the needs of those individual customers that are not going into those retailers at a much higher degree than perhaps before. Yes, yes, no, very true. Those are you know, many, many different uh, uh, dynamics that's uh, shaping the entire supply chain. And I'm also thinking that uh, whether the globalization of the supply chain will survive this you know uh, pandemic because we had already the digital age was already pushing us towards you know more protectionism you know more moving inwards so 
it's going to be interesting to see whether we are going to see continue seeing the global supply chain or will the supply chains become more regional and more you know national so what do you think do you think that global globalization of the supply chain will survive or we are going to see more and more of you know national and local and uh, regional supply chain that's an excellent question. I'm inclined to believe that um, we will we will take a step back from being as globalized of a supply chain as we are in. But that's not necessarily a given. There's there's essentially you know, two options that I can see. One is um, that we maintain our um, you know globalized supply chains uh, as it as it as they stand to an extent as as it stands today. Um, and there are certain um, uh, changes that are put in effect. There is more storage allocation in particular countries, uh, a longer lead time, more of a willingness to have product produced in advance of when it's needed so that if there is a, another event like this, product doesn't need to be imported from another country, it's in the country uh, already. Um, there is, you know, in, in this scenario, we would have to go through, you know, various production facilities, very manufacturers would have to go through um, maintaining production and maintaining the flow of commerce uh, by adhering to an expected increase in security guidelines or health screenings and these types of things at various distribution points and at various different manufacturers. There might be governmental um, uh, impacts that also need to be considered in terms of regulations as to where certain products can be produced or what can be imported or what the, um, the screening processes are for products coming in from specific countries into you know, the United States or, or anywhere else. All of these different pieces will likely add two things. One would be time into the fold, so it'll take longer for a product to come, and the other will be cost into the fold. It'll be more costly for, for products to come. The alternative is uh, more regional and, and smaller supply chains, which seem, at least in the interim, to be perhaps a little bit more likely. And this is where, you know, even though it's a higher cost to manufacture products and a higher cost to, um, uh, to, to, to store products, it might make more sense if we run a simulation and various types of modeling to reduce the risk of a, another pandemic taking place by having more regional supply chains, so having products produced in the country that they're being sold in or manufactured and, and stored and, and warehoused and distributed from the country of production. Okay. Now, what this may mean is that we wouldn't be able to take advantage of low-cost materials. We might not be able to take advantage of low-cost labor. That may mean that the prices of these products actually go up. Okay. So there's a number of different factors that we have to consider, but globalization as a whole has become almost the catchword, almost the catchphrase in terms of supply chain. Everything is, is globalized to an extent. There's products that are made in China, marketing arms that are uh, you know, done in, in the United States, uh, distribution warehouses that are, that are held throughout the world, uh, warehouses you know, for, 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 for mixed products that are mixing centers that are used to avoid tariffs for, for finished products coming across the board. It, it's, it's gone to an extent now where this is you know, the norm. Um, is this getting too complex and too costly and perhaps more so of a concern, is there too much risk that's added into the supply chain that, based on what we're seeing, um, would companies you know, want to pivot to, to, instead of being as globalized as they are, to being more local or more regional? Or would there be kind of a hybrid solution where you know, there's still manufacturing that's taking place overseas, but there's also, for lack of a better you know, word, safety stock in terms of the entire chain that's, that's, uh, that's being produced and held in, um, in, in the country of, uh, of, of, of operation. Yes, no, no, I, I hear you, but I'm also thinking that 
because we have gone through this pandemic and we are still going through this and we are witnessing what challenges are emerging because of you know this globalized supply chain that we are so vulnerable we are so dependent on the other countries even for basic you know materials like you know personally protective equipment and all so we were not even able to get masks for you know this uh, pandemic so that you know probably will put the cost as the you know driving force for our decisions to you know send our manufacturing to other countries like china so the, I, I do see that you know a lot of shifts will happen because you know cost is not the sole driver here it's our risk and it's our resiliency the need for resiliency that is going to drive the decisions for tomorrow uh, i think besides uh, also we are because we are going more towards you know uh, keeping cyberspace at the center we will be collecting lot more data uh, of you know the consumer behavior of uh, you know where the risks are emerging and you know where we can make our supply chain more intelligent so where what are the key elements from your perspective that are crucial for an intelligent supply chain and in a resilient supply chain that we need to build for the coming tomorrow Excellent. so these are some of the areas that i've consulted on and some of the areas in which i've worked in um, your your point is extremely valid where you're, you're, you're noting resilience as opposed to cost. Um, but in, in, in many models, um, you can actually factor down the, uh, the accepting of risk to a dollar figure. So you can actually price out what the cost is for a company accepting you know, elements of risk. Uh, and it becomes a model in which we are basically deciding how much risk to take on what proportionality of risk we want based on potential profits, uh, based on potential profitability, based on potential cost, based on potential loss, based on potential revenue hits. So what we're essentially saying here is, is, is kind of the same thing. A company needs to, um, companies in general need to decide on how they want to minimize their level of exposure and their level of risk for, you know, in the coming years um, for potentially devastating scenarios like we're seeing now and at what cost? If they are completely moving their manufacturing arms to different countries and, and localizing and onshoring, um, is that potentially going to price them out of you know, the market? Is their product all of a sudden gonna be needing to be priced at triple what their competitor's product is? And by way of various other simulations modeling, is that gonna be something that consumers are wanting to pay? It depends on the product, depends on the industry, but you know, there's a very good chance that the answer would be no. So um, by removing risk in terms of you know, certain areas, you're actually potentially adding cost. And by uh, accepting risk, you are theoretically um, adding cost if you model uh, you know, what, the, what the outcome would be if, if something were to take place. So in general, the point that I'm making is that in general, at the end of the day, when we look at it, it all comes down to cost. Um, how much risk is, is taken, how much risk is avoided, um, where there's risk, how the business actually functions, what the cost of the product is that, that needs to go out to the consumer, all comes down to cost and the bottom line as far as whether or not a company can be viable by way of what risks they're taking. Sure, I understand, but at the same time, risk is a very broad term and there are many, many different types of risk. And I think the cybersecurity risks are going to be at the center of the decision-making process because as we move towards you know, defining and designing systems for the coming tomorrow, cyberspace is going to be at the center. Now, if, 
if we are going to purchase, you know, uh, procure cyberspace, you know, cyber hardwares, you know, or software from other countries with which we do not have good relations and with which we have known to be facing, you know, cybersecurity attacks from them that, you know, countries, you know, have to be very cautious where they get their digital supply chain because digital supply chain is going to be at the center of a lot of decision-making processes. And there, you know, I think not just for building the resiliency, managing the cybersecurity risk will be at the center of, you know, all the supply chain decision-making process. So, for, for instance, right now, you know, we have witnessed that for the 5G, you know, United States is not... Uh, going to be ever comfortable to get the 5G technologies from China. And the reason behind that we all know is about the algorithm that drives that. Same for, you know, the blockchain or same for any other, you know, AI initiative that uh, we may witness, you know, coming our way, the transformation uh, that is based on artificial intelligence. So it is it, the countries like China, Russia and others that we, United States, you know, will always have concern getting their digital technologies from. So in this post-COVID-19 world, as we try to, you know, see this, as we see digital technologies playing a critical enabling role in delivering the improvements in redefining, redesigning systems, which technologies do you see are going to be at the center and which countries are going to be at the center of this emerging geopolitics and uh, rightfully for the right reason because you know it is at the end of the day it's all about security you're absolutely right uh, from a security standpoint uh, my, my expertise isn't necessarily in, in 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 data security as much as it would be in the movement of product and, and supply chain management but i can comment um to your point in this um, as we move into a post-COVID world, what we're inevitably going to be seeing is a reliance on ways of doing business that have been different. That's most likely going to be I cannot hear you. Um, you know, Zoom bombing, I think the term is, uh, and you know, all these different types of things that are, that are coming into, into the place. Right? Uh, we can also look and we can also see that if we look at uh, the supply chain from an informational standpoint, we see uh, where information is actually pulled from, where information is coming from, um, and how that data is, is arriving. Do we have measurements to can, that can actually measure the flow of an operation? You know, these types of things. Yeah, we do. Um, is it more so a matter of data sharing? That's possible. Uh, but I wouldn't necessarily say that that has um, an impact in a physical supply chain, even a digital supply chain. It's more so um, the movement of, of, of information going one way and the movement of, of, of product going the other way in, as a general rule. And in, in, for the most part, what is taking place doesn't necessarily open um, uh, more risks than there were before. Perhaps opens risks in a different way because now we're looking at business from a different perspective and we're focusing on, um, you, you know, uh, a, a digital transactions more so than we were physical transactions. But in general, the same risks will apply. Yes. No. I I I, I see your point there. Uh, now, as we collect all these data and we analyze the data of the you know digitization of the supply chain what are the insights you are you know seeing what, what can you share with our global viewers and listeners about what you are seeing that is troubling for 
the nations, you know, individual nations, uh, security, especially, you know, when we are going through times like, you know, COVID-19 and as we are witnessing, you know, the industries being impacted heavily, for instance, you know, agriculture and food industry and uh, uh, the healthcare industry. What insights you are, you know, getting, looking at the digitization of the supply chain? Well, if you look at how things have changed, uh, changed in terms of you know, even manufacturing cycles, you, you can see that there's a number of different areas that, that have actually taken place. I mean, in, in, we, we started off the conversation by talking about Chinese manufacturing. Um, there's been a 13.5% decline in, in, in January and February 2020 versus January and February 2019. That's critical. Uh, we can also see that, you know, there's employee concerns in terms of, um, of, of food manufacturing too. Tyson Foods has come in the news uh, lately because they've had some concerns in, in, in that arena. Um, we're looking at, you know, drastic demand of forecasting vulnerabilities. We look at how many people are buying cars, you know, last year or this year. The, the, the forecasts and the projections are, are completely skewed. We don't necessarily know what's going on next. Hand sanitizer, the complete opposite. Right now, the sales for those have, have skyrocketed. So if we move from one arena to the next, what we're basically seeing is that we're having to do two things, at least two things. One is um, we're having to adjust to a different model of, of fulfilling um, the needs of consumers. Um, the different model meaning you know, online distribution and, 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 and making sure that the product is, is, uh, is received by an actual uh, consumer. Now this opens the door to a number of different vulnerabilities. Um, is the product using last mile delivery services that are not necessarily um, able to, to uh, distribute these products, uh, not specialized distributors. Does that mean that there's a potential for damage? Does that mean that there's a potential for uh, product uh, you know, misuse or risk or, or damage in terms of, or, or sorry, injury? Um, the way that the model is working now and the way that you know, we're kind of moving towards with, with, um, with e-commerce might also mean that there is strain put on certain you know, other entities that weren't necessarily considered previously. Uh, if, if things are shut down and things are all of a sudden reopened and there's fewer employees that are going into a manufacturing plant, does that mean that those employees have more to do than they had to do before? Um, is, are, you know, is the work of 10 employees uh, now falling on the work of five employees from a manufacturing standpoint? Does that open the door for quality assurance issues, quality control issues, right? are there risks that, that are taking place there? And you know, in addition to looking at you know, that cycle and that piece, and that part of the, the supply chain, which is drastically changed and is likely to continue to change like we discussed, what we're also looking at, that's kind of compounding this, the second part is the economy as a whole and the uncertainty that's taken place, which has changed the willingness of people to spend, right? so people are more conservative because it's an uncertain time, and they're more conservative possibly because of the unemployment numbers that have come up. And there's uncertainty because nobody really knows how the demand patterns are gonna go and what to produce and what to make and where to store. So all of these different factors are, are coming in. And if we look at the transformation that's taking place from a supply chain, going digital, you know, having more of a reliance on e-commerce, this is understandable, this is what we're seeing, uh, but we're also seeing that the behavioral patterns are changing. So it might not necessarily be as many products that are purchased. And so from the manufacturing standpoint, um, manufacturers and, and, and the, you know, the back end of the supply chain may not necessarily know how many to produce, how many to store, where to store. And if they are needing to completely regenerate their supply chain, what that may mean is that they might be 
trying to make these decisions while also contending with various other metrics for risk in terms of where they should be sourcing their product, where they should be manufacturing their product, where they should be distributing their product and wholesaling and, and, and storing their product. So all of these factors are coming into the mix, basically all at once. Right? Um, the supply chain in general has kind of stopped on a dime for what we were doing before COVID-19 and is now something that can't just be, you know, the, the, if the trend was going like this, we can't just say, okay, well, you know, we're flat now and we're going to go back to the same, that's not going to work. Everything has changed from the perspective of how people are buying, what's motivating purchases, um, how these products are being manufactured, globally products are being manufactured in general, there's considerations along the board, how products are being, or, or supplies are being procured, um, where they're being stored, how they're being shipped, what tariffs need to be considered, what restrictions need to be considered in the future, where there's potential um, political concerns or, or, or tax concerns or uh, health concerns or screening processes that are going to you know, elongate the supply chain or make the supply chain more costly, which isn't going to work for the end consumer. So a number of different considerations need to come up in general. Um, going through digital confirmation, uh, uh, the digital uh, change, the digital adjustment is just kind of one. Um, there's there's many others that are that are also uh, you know taking place in the back end. Very true. No, I, I I see your point in that, and I was thinking it's not only the impact on the supply chain. We are also seeing the you know huge change in the demand side. And we are also seeing a huge change in the consumer behavior. Now, when we talk about the demand, you know, there were, if there is an outbreak of any, you know, uh, disease happening uh, in any part of the world, there, there is going to be a fundamental shift in what would be required if it's going to become a pandemic. What kind of uh, things, uh, products will be necessary and what kind of products uh, supply will be necessary and what kind of product demand will shoot up uh, for the you know consumers to be able to get through the any amount of time period that uh, they have to get through because of this pandemic. Now, do we have any intelligence system that can tell nations, that can guide nations that uh, if this outbreak is happening in China or any part of the world, that what impact, what would be necessary? Where would the demand increase? Where would the supply need to be there? And what would need to change for us to be, a, for the global community uh, or for any nation to be able to, you know, individually get through, you know, this uh, turbulent time until, you know, things settle down. Do we have any intelligence system that guides nations and its decision makers in how the supply and demand will shift during any and uh, all outbreaks in the coming years? Good question. Uh, the, the, one of the main problems is that we don't necessarily know, you know when this pandemic, I, I know this, this sounds rather ridiculous, we, we don't necessarily know when it's gonna end. Um, so it would be different if we knew that you know, we're, we're in, um, in May at the moment. It'd be different if we said, okay, by August, 2020, this pandemic is gonna be over. So we need to adjust our supply chain accordingly and consumers and manufacturers and businesses knew that by August, 2020, everything was gonna go back to normal. Everything was gonna be fine. Uh, that would be completely different. We don't know that. We have no idea what's gonna happen next. There's um, concerns uh, in terms of you know, media uh, posts that are, that, are, that are troublesome in terms of um, you know, second phases and third phases of the virus. Uh, and there's concern because of you know all sorts of other factors in terms of whether or not you know employment numbers are going to continue to plummet. How exactly stimulus packages are going to work? Well, all sorts of different areas that are behind the scenes that are that are you know may not 
appear to be a supply chain issue, but actually are because they're impacting the way people actually think and the behavioral patterns of consumers. Now, what that means is that we don't necessarily have a model that says, okay, well, if this happens, you know, then we do this and this is what the impact's gonna be and that's the end of it. And the reason for why is because we don't know um, how behavioral patterns of consumers are going to change. If it's gonna be long-term, it's gonna be short-term. We don't, we have cues and we have metrics and we can kind of you know, see from prior data how things may have changed in previous times of uncertainty after 9-11, the global financial crisis, the Thailand, you know, all the ones that I mentioned earlier, we can see how people's um, behavioral patterns changed and how long it's taken to kind of you know, come back in terms of spending, in terms of um, spending in certain areas like airlines and these types of things. But is there a way that we can, can, can conclusively tell what is going to happen uh, based on, you know, if this pandemic were to last for two months, three months? No, there isn't. Um, based on everything that's changing, we are not necessarily able to say, okay, we have a pandemic, this is how it's going to affect the automotive industry to the actual percentage. There's so many factors that are contributing, like we, we, we mentioned earlier, in terms of behavioral patterns, industry, manufacturing sites, you know, delivery models, all of these different things, so many pieces of the puzzle that it's not necessarily clear to see you know, what the impact is going to be and how the impact might be if a, another pandemic took place or another disaster took place look at previous data and we can see how people reacted and how businesses reacted and how businesses changed and how people changed, uh, consumers changed, and, and you know what the, the, um, the, the ways of overcoming you know, prior disasters were, uh, and we can make assumptions and use you know, some sort of trend analysis, and perhaps regression in some ways, but that's about it. But if, if, we, if we have that you know, taking place, we might be only preparing for the same event, in other words, another pandemic right? Another flood, another earthquake, which is very important. But what about the next supply chain disaster that is different than what we're seeing now, right? Um, if you know what I mean. So when, when you know, 9-11 took place, for example, there was preparedness in terms of security measures and whatnot for future situations that would have happened, you know, similar to that. And, and, and perhaps a little bit of a spectrum, so a little bit of you know, the, the other areas that may have been similar. Um, when the floods took place uh, in, in, in Thailand or, or, you know, the earthquakes in Japan, and these types of things, hurricanes, you know, in, even in the United States uh, that infected a lot of the supply chain areas of various companies, we could kind of say, okay, well, this is our you know, plan for next time this happens, this is what we're going to do because we learned from this. But how do we go down the path of projecting what to do in the next supply chain disaster as a whole, that becomes difficult. We might be able to, to, to learn from what we've done this time and say, okay, well, the next time a pandemic happens, this is what you know, is gonna be impacted, but not necessarily as a whole, a supply chain disaster. Yes, absolutely. I think we, we learned from this experience and then we have the data and the information that we have been collecting uh, during this pandemic and then use that knowledge and you know build intelligent systems for the coming tomorrow that would help us you know to get through any and all uh, future crises that uh, can come our way so having said that it seems you have written a great book on supply chain management so what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners about your book and about uh, you know where you if they, any of them you know would like to purchase the book where they should be looking for? Would it be on Amazon or where would that be available? And uh, uh, especially what would you like to tell our young, brilliant minds uh, that, you know, are trying to shape the coming tomorrow, are trying to redefine, redesign the systems 
and want to make sure that they bring security and resiliency and trust in our systems, what would you like to tell them also? Well, thank you. Let me answer the first question for you. Uh, the book that uh, that I've written is called Perspectives of Supply Chain Competitiveness. Uh, it's it's uh, the, the subtitle is an evaluation of supply chain growth literature and the framework for assessment and vulnerabilities in gaining a competitive advantage. Uh, essentially, the book is 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 interesting in that it discusses um, various arenas for. Um, how the literature of supply chain manager management has existed, where the growth of supply chain management has focused to be competitive in nature, um, and finally, you know, where there are vulnerabilities in the growth of competitiveness um, within supply chain management. In other words, uh, if, if, if companies were to use the supply chain to gain a competitive advantage, where they might have you know, specific vulnerabilities. Uh, the book will be available on Amazon. It's just gone into print now, so we're on the 21st of May. It's just gone into print uh, as of yesterday, um, so I expect it should be available on Amazon um, in, uh, in mid-June 2020 um, for purchase. Um, as far as advice to um, you know, the, the, the young professionals that are, that are coming into the world of supply chain management, uh, I, would, um, I, I, I would basically share some advice that I was given that, that has worked you know, for me. Um, in looking at supply chain management as a, as a practice and as a concept, it's, it's easy to accept supply chain management as a stable and functioning uh, theory. Um, the problem is that it's the exact opposite of that. It's changing uh, every day, every event that takes place, everything changes. Uh, supply chain management is not necessarily a concept, it's more of a description of a concert of events that are constantly changing and taking place and interacting with one another. My advice is to focus on not necessarily what has happened only in terms of data, but what might be happening from a number of different perspectives. Uh, consumer behavioral patterns, uh, political um, uh, changes, uh, growth of communities, growth of countries, uh, changes in terms of competition, not necessarily just you know, a product and looking at demand forecasts and looking at you know, the same type of data that, that we are kind of accustomed to look at. Uh, in this respect, you are not necessarily just understanding supply chain as a concept, but you're understanding it as a part and perhaps foundation of a business as a whole. Yes, very true. That's an excellent advice. So thank you so much, Dr. Firoz, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on impact of COVID-19 on global supply chain, and I'm sure our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided today, and especially the young people. I'm sure that they will get inspiration from uh, the discussion that we had today, and as a result, this Risk Roundup Dialogue has been of service. We thank you for that. So Risk Group is a stride executive risk research platform and community, and our ecosystem is the first and only cross-disciplinary and collective community that is made of top scientists, security professionals, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, philanthropists, policymakers, and academic institutions from across nations collaborating to research, review, rate, and report strategic security risks to protect the future of humanity. Add your voice to risk groups, get involved to protect the future of humanity. Until next time, I'm Jayashree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.